Thank you, Kent. Um, I am not preaching. I am giving a talk, a lecture, that I have entitled The Wife of Uriah the Hittite, Political Seductress, Willing Participant, Naive Woman, or Hashtag Bathsheba 2. The preacher, as a sensitive theologian, in a hashtag, um, hashtag me too, and a hashtag church to world. And when I say sensitive, I mean sensitive to the text and sensitive to culture. And this talk, this lecture is based on 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 5 for reference. Next to Genesis chapter 3, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 may be one of the most disturbing accounts in Hebrew narratives. In 2 Samuel 11, David's sin is so sudden, so brutal, and so unexpected, and so devastating in its outcome that according to Brueggemann, it rivals in power the original act of Adam and Eve. In 2 Samuel 12, the forgiveness granted to David and the close proximity of grace and victory uh, to the devastating consequences and the sordid affair seems to be as scandalous as the sins committed. But what role did Bathsheba play in the sordid affair? Does Bathsheba share some of the blame in David's shocking moral failure and egregious abuse of power? Across the centuries, exegetes and preachers have offered a number of answers to the Bathsheba question. Answers ranging from labeling Bathsheba as a seductress to sympathizing uh, with her as a victim of the royal abuse of power. And this talk, this discussion will summarize some of these views and think through their exegetical and homiletical implications for us today. Branding Bathsheba as David's seductress is ancient as rabbinic exegesis. These Jewish scholars could not deny David's egregious sin and high crimes in 2 Samuel 11. But due to the manner in which he is presented in the preceding chapters of 2 Samuel 11, and due to their commitment to David and the royal line, 
they concluded that some mitigating external circumstance must have occurred to explain how David, Israel's greatest king, could succumb to such an egregious act of adultery that culminated in premeditated murder. Their solution was to claim that Bathsheba deliberately bathed on the roof where she could be seen by the king and use her visible beauty and physical assets to set a trap to seduce the king. Since Bathsheba tempted David, enticing him with her seductive bait, she bears some of the blame for David's moral failure. Note that this exegetical attempt does not eliminate David's guilt and responsibility, but minimizes it at Bathsheba's expense. A number of scholars espouse some version of this reading to this day. For example, respectfully, Eugene Merrill in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on Samuel writes, one may not fault David for perhaps seeking the cooler breezes of the late afternoon, but Bathsheba, knowing the proximity of her courtyard to the palace, probably harbored ulterior motives toward the king. Yet David's submission to her charms is inexcusable for the deliberate steps he followed to bring her to the palace required more than enough time for him to resist the initial impulsive temptation. And there's James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, in parentheses, as support. Other scholars draw an inference from the narrative that although Bathsheba was not a tempter, she was a willing participant nonetheless. They base this inferential reading on verse 4. David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Three verbs of rapid succession, sent, took, lay, showed a lustful rush of David's power, but between the taking and the lying is the statement she came to him. Thus, in the mind of some readers, the fact that the narrator says she came to him means that this was not a matter, this was not completely a matter of choice. Bathsheba came willingly. Moreover, in this inferential reading, Bathsheba considered it an honor to be noticed by the king. She therefore participated of her own free will in the adulterous act, sharing the blame and guilt with David and at the same time lessening David's culpability. Erdman's words in Lang's critical commentary represent this view. The narrative, he asserts, he claims, in print, leads us to infer that Bathsheba came and submitted herself to David without opposition. This undoubtedly proves her participation in guilt, Though we are not to assume that her bathing was purposed in order to be seen, she was moved by vanity and ambition and not venturing to refuse the demand of the king. Now, John Calvin, reformer, 
systematic theologian, pastor, and perhaps one of the most careful exegetes after the close of the apostolic era in the history of the church, in a sermon on 2 Samuel, does not accuse Bathsheba of deliberate seductive behavior. However, he faults her for a lack of discretion, a lack of modesty that resulted in her inadvertently, in Calvin's words, becoming a net of the devil, igniting a fire of lust in David's heart. She was naive, according to Calvin, thoughtless in this regard. She should have known better, according to Calvin. Following Calvin's interpretation of Bathsheba, respectfully, 20th century American radio Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, across national, and think about this, national and international radio waves, also faulted Bathsheba for her lack of modesty and discretion. He then applies this understanding of Bathsheba's immodesty to contemporary life by saying, at the risk of sounding like a prude, let me say that we're living in a day when women's dress has become a great temptation to men. I wonder how many women, even Christian women, realize what they're doing when they wear certain types of apparel. I have attended services, McGee says, in many churches in which the soulless would get up and carry you to the gates of heaven, he says. Then I have seen her sit down and carry you to the gates of hell. It is my opinion that this woman, Bathsheba, was partially guilty. What was she doing bathing in public? For centuries, one of the above three readings of Bathsheba was common, both in the world of scholarship and in the world of the church. We're prior to place being given to the first reading. But this interpretive situation changed with the advent of feminist interpretation of the Bible and the emergence of other voices in the interpretive process. In an effort to redeem the reputation of Bathsheba and clear her name from what was considered to be a mainly male interpretive misrepresentation of her character, these women scholars proposed another interpretive reading. Bathsheba was not a seductress, she was not a willing participant, she was not an immodest woman, she was a victim. But even some interpreters who were not a part of the critical feminist movement in biblical studies as such, but who were conservative and evangelical um, in their theological commitments did not embrace the traditional reading of Bathsheba. For example, in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, on First and Second Samuel, George Baldwin, who is certainly a conservative evangelical Old Testament scholar, the late George Baldwin, formerly principal of Trinity College in Bristol, England, argues that in Second Samuel 11, uh, Bathsheba is not a seductress or willing participant or an immodest woman, but a victim of David's lust and power. But this view was it recently has not been restricted to women because about ten years ago, John Piper in one of his sermons, lifted up his voice and said bluntly in a sermon that David raped Bathsheba. 
So in short, these are four readings of Bathsheba. I mean, you get into you get into study of this. I mean, people are advancing all kinds of reasons for David's failure outside of Bathsheba. Some say it was the heat, uh, midlife crisis, some other kind of factor to mitigate the David's egregious moral failure. Um, in light of this discussion, how should we understand Bathsheba's role in 2 Samuel 11? Is our control of her simply a function of male and female interpretive lenses? Recently, uh, cognitively oriented literary scholars and interpreters have argued that the assumptions and analytical tools of cognitive grammar, cognitive linguistics, which by the way is informing Abe's work, even though it may not be as explicit as such, uh, uh, place, uh, help place uh, the interpretive conclusions on a firmer footing. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I just want to say uh, in the second half some of the, some of the assumptions uh, that undergird what I'm going to say next coming out of a linguistic understanding of the way language works. Uh, James Barr, by the way, as I mentioned yesterday, in 1961 said one of the problems with the biblical theology movement was that they didn't even have a philosophy of how language worked. Didn't have a linguistic philosophy of how to work with language. And that's, but that's a whole other matter. And so there's been a lot of work in, in this particular area and one of the things I want to say that's going to undergird the, the remainder of our time here uh, is the assumption that's going to undergird, that's undergirding what I'm going to my analysis of, of this concern next. This assumption is, is this, is grammatical structure in text, so in, in, in scripture is overt, does not conceal a deep or underlying structure. What the interpreter actually sees in a text is what is there. Therefore, the need is skill in interpreting the overt grammatical, syntactical organization of text and sensitivity to the stylistic rhetorical strategies of the surface structure. I prefer surface structure as opposed to, uh, uh, to plain um, uh, literal sense. Surface structure is actually a more accurate way to deal with this particular issue. Um, and so uh, based then of just the surface structure Plain, overt grammatical structure taken into consideration, grammar, the way the, uh, the prophetic narrator has construed things in the Hebrew text, this is what I have com concluded. A close reading of the surface structure of 2 Samuel 11 is itself a challenging exercise. But if we follow the grammar, word order, and rhetorical strategy of the narrator as expressed in the surface structure of the narrative, the following is obvious. David stays in Jerusalem while his men are away at war. After an afternoon siesta, he rises from his bed, takes a casual stroll on the roof of his palace, sees a woman bathing. At this point, the surface structure narration gives the impression that the actions so far in the narrative are not premeditated. This is therefore not a bare and neutral description of the facts. But what about the issue of Bathsheba's bathing? The Hebrew term translated bathing is rahas, used three times in the account, first as a participle in verse 3, as an imperative in verse 8 where it is translated as wash, and as a vayikto verb in 1220, then David arose from the earth and washed. The term means to cleanse with water. Sometimes rahas was used for the cleansing of a part of the body with water in routine and ritual context. 
In some circumstances, the cleansing of the feet was an expression of hospitality. In other cases, rahas is translated by the word wash. In other surface structures and tactical contexts, rahas was used for the cleansing of the body in routine and ritual context. In these contexts, rahas is translated as bathe. The surface structure used of rahas does not indicate if Bathsheba's bathing or washing was routine or ritual in nature, nor does it indicate that she was nude. But as we will see, the larger context suggests that it may have been a ritual washing. Also, the larger contextual background information activated by this statement, the woman bathing, includes the notion that Middle Eastern homes did not have indoor plumbing. Thus, Bathsheba was probably washing at home in her courtyard in the privacy of her own home. Furthermore, it was, an appropriate, it was inappropriate from a cultural point of view to look and gaze into another person's courtyard under these circumstances. Bathsheba is not being immodest here, nor should she be faulted for bathing or washing in her own home. David's voyeurism is the problem. Following the surface structure, we note that the narrator stops the action at the end of verse 2 and makes a descriptive comment about the woman. The woman was beautiful of appearance exceedingly. That's the force of the Hebrew text. The physical description of people is rare in Scripture, and these rare physical depictions call reader and listener attention to them for interpretive reasons. These descriptions set up initial reader expectations or signal motivations for the action of other characters in the account. The surface structure physical description activates this larger network of understanding of how those who were familiar with the use of physical descriptions in the book of Genesis in the early sections of Samuel. Thus motivated by the visual, David sends and inquires of the woman and learns who she is. She has a name, Bathsheba. She is the daughter of Eliam. It is likely that Eliam here is Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 24. Bathsheba then is the daughter of one of David's mighty men and the granddaughter of one of his most trusted advisors. She is also the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. She's married and is associated with the loyal men of his inner circle. The overt grammatical identification of Bathsheba serves as a trigger to activate shared knowledge of the Decalogue and text in Leviticus. Under no circumstances was adultery to be engaged in. The information should have stopped David. But in spite of this information, he sins, he, um, he takes her, she comes to him, and he lies with her. The surface narration of the act is very short, five valuable verbs in rapid sequence. David sent, took, she came, David lay, and she returned, and then it's over. The surface structure of the narrative as a whole clarifies what is involved in Bathsheba's coming to David in verse 4. The close reading of the surface structure makes clear that several people come to David in these two chapters. In verse 6, Joab sent Uriah to David, and Uriah came to David. Verse 22, the messengers went, and he came and made known to David. He came to David. In chapter 12, verse 1, YHWH sent Nathan to David, and he came to him. And the close reading of the surface structure implies that coming to David on the part of Bathsheba, the part of Uriah, the part of Joab's military messenger, and a part of Nathan are not that these characters were willing participants at such. In context, all of them are coming within the context of power and authority. Bathsheba came because she was summoned by the king. 
not because she was a willing participant. The only willing participant of the verb come in the story is David when he came to Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12, 24. But between the rapid fire of the verbs, of verses 4 and 5, I need you to think about what I'm saying. I need you to listen, stay, hang, hang in here with me, please. The narrator, between the, ver the rapid fire verses, verses 4 and 5, the narrator inserted a circumstantial participle clause, clause that slows the narrative pace in the midst of the rapid verbs. David sent messengers, he took her, she came to him, and he lay with her. Then there's the circumstantial participle, a reflexive participle. She was purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to the house. So the circumstantial reflexive participle clause placed here in the context of these other verbs has perplexed interpreters and preachers. Uh, um, some folks on the fact that she was purifying herself from her ceremonial impurity after her period was over, thus underscoring that David is no doubt the father of Bathsheba's baby. Fair enough. But this is the language of ritual and ceremonial sanctification. She was, she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. This is something that she was engaging in. Um, it, um, it involved washing with water and maybe what the bathing was about in verse 4 but also reflective part of purifying herself in the context of the five verbs indicates that this is uh, this sanctifying action was, note this, simultaneous with the five rapid verbs. While these rapid fire verbs are taking place simultaneously, she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. This circumstantial clause is placed to make salient that her actions of sanctifying herself from her uncleanness engaging in ceremonial washing out of reverence for God after her period was simultaneous with David's actions of sending, taking, and laying. And by narrating in this manner, the prophetic narrator construes David's actions not only as an abuse of power, but sacrilege and impious violation, not only Bathsheba and Uriah and her family, but an affront to God himself. It was a desecration. That's what this was. Much more could be said here. It suffices to say that the narrator's surface structure rhetorical strategy guides the reader along the interpretive path. David alone is guilty. At the end of chapter 11, the narrator stops the action and makes an interpretive judgment about everything that has occurred in this story so far. Thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. The narrator's surface structure rhetorical strategy is such that by the time the interpretive judgment is made about David's actions, the ideal, sensitively informed reader agrees with the narrative assessment. 
The narrator's surface structure assessment trumps all other interpretive considerations because the narrator's voice is the voice of God. The close reading of the surface structure supports Joyce Baldwin's conclusion, wrestling with the fact that the prophetic narrator does not deal at all with Bathsheba's point of view Baldwin writes, every sensitive reader must wonder what the whole episode looked like from the point of view of Bathsheba. She was the victim of David's lust, but the narrator deliberately omits her feelings from consideration in order to focus on David. Nevertheless, she suffered much, losing her integrity bearing a child illegitimately, losing her husband, marrying her lover, and then losing her child. All the ingredients for drama are here and invite exploration, but the biblical narrator resisted any invitation to sidetrack by treating Bathsheba with clinical objectivity, the writer cleverly conveys the self-centeredness of David's lust. And it is precisely the terrible, unmitigated reality of David's sin and the enormity of his guilt and the devastating consequences of his disobedience for himself and his family that make the grace of God and forgiveness granted to him so undeserving and so unexpected. At the same time, over the head of Bathsheba, we could put up this inscription written in English, French, and German, hashtag Bathsheba too. In short, it seems that at a minimum, some scholars and some preachers owe Bathsheba an interpretive and homiletical apology for crucifying her on the cross of incompetent exegesis and inept exposition. Our 21st century hashtag MeToo world requires sensitive pastoral theologians who preach these kinds of texts even when they take positions different from the one that I have advocated, preach these texts with exegetical sensitivity, accuracy, and pastoral grace and compassion. Otherwise, we will continue to be construed as sexist and misogynistic and in the process hinder the gospel and misrepresent the character of God.